My Mac Podcast number 262 this week, Ted Landau, and we got our air pollution winners. You're listening to the MyMac.com podcast with your host, Tim Robertson. And as I was saying, this is show number 262. I'm your host, Tim Robertson, and I've got Guy Searle with us. Hi, Guy. Hello. Been been off for the last two weeks. Yeah. It's Some nice people to have you say back. I was off before then, too. Well, but only mentally. I mean, that didn't True. count. Hey, David. Hello. How are you? Good, David Cohen. And uh, you weren't here. Oh, no, you were here. I just forget I've been, sometimes. I've been here. <laughs> Uh, someone new on the show, but not new at MyMac.com, is Tom Schmidt. Hey, Tom. Hello. How are you? Just fine. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Uh, we're going to have Ted Landau on the show here in a few minutes, but what we need to do first, I recorded me calling the winners of our iFrog, iFrog's Ear Pollution DJ Style Headphones. Boy, I almost ran out of breath going through all that. Whew. <laughs> tell ya. Uh, Fifty dollars. Frogs part that threw you. It is. It's. I, I don't know why I don't want to say I frogs. It's I F R O G Z. These are those DJ style headphones that really funky graphics on them. Looked really cool. You weren't here when we announced this contest, guy. No, 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 I wasn't. But I've I've seen a lot of other I frog stuff, and, and for the most part, I really like it. It's really neat looking stuff. And we had two pair of headphones to give away, and I did call both the winners. The first one is Doug Bonner. He's from Canada. And then Lincoln Bannery, he is from uh, Oregon. Now, we didn't talk to Lincoln too much because I didn't realize this when I called him, but he's actually one of our listener invites. We're going to have him on the show in mid-December. So I saved most of the conversation with Lincoln for when we actually have him on the show. Yes, why not embarrass him live? That's right. (laughs) So (laughs) so, uh, I'm going to play those two calls here, and we'll be right back with Ted Landau. Hello. Hi, is Doug there? That's me. Hi, Doug. This is Tim Robertson from MyMac.com. How are you? Okay, where from? MyMac.com. Oh, right. You entered a contest oh. a couple weeks ago. Oh, God. I was just listening to your last podcast last night. Oh, where are you? Yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? You didn't win. I no, uh-uh. oh. No, I'm calling all the losers this time, telling them they didn't win, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you won. Congratulations. Well, that's fantastic. I just, I know, I just found your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it, I'm really enjoying it. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So you yeah. just started listening, and you already get a fifty dollars pair of headphones. Yeah, that's that's you know, it's great because I, I really need uh, these are over the year ones too, right? Yes, they are. They look like yeah. I've never used them myself, but I've heard good things. And yeah, I went and looked at them uh, when you uh, when I entered the contest. Kind of funky looking, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. It's you know I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, a little style. <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. So, are you a new Mac user? Been using it for a long time. Oh, um, I'm in newspapers, so I'm sitting at an iMac, which is what we're using here. I got that at home in an old G5, but I've always had Macs. Yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, uh, 15 years. You, you, so you're still enjoying them after this long? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Does it seem like they're new to you now? I mean, you've been using them for a long time since we actually been publishing my Mac. We started in '95, so I, the yeah. computers we were using back then, it's yeah, yeah. they're That's just so the different. Time. I mean, I'm old school in a way, right? I mean, I came up 
not hot metal or anything, but we were pasting up, you know, we were printing out and pasting up strips of paper. And, uh, you know, then a few years later, I mean, I, you know, I just kind of figured out how to do it on the computer. So now we sit at a computer and... <laughs> now, when the big migration well, happened in the newspaper industry from, you know, pasting up, copying and paste yep. to computers, did they offer classes back then or did they just kind of figure you're on your own and catch up? Well, it was kind of funny. I mean, they had people that they had kind of, they hired, you know, they're always hiring people. I mean, it was non-union when... A few years ago, we unionized, and I was part of that. So before that, they were just going out and hiring anybody who could type and putting them on the computer rather than teaching us old-school people, right? And I just kind of, whenever I could, I would sit down and do corrections, and just I just figured it out on my own. That's the way to do it, I think. I think you learn yeah. better that way. I'm not much into doing night classes. And then, no, <laughs> no. was enough, but that was years ago. Yeah, when you get to a certain age, night classes are just, ugh. <laughs> Doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> well, congratulations for winning. I'm glad that uh, an old time Mac user like you got a got a pair of headphones. I think that's pretty cool. Do you have an iPhone or an iPod? I'm talking on an iPhone right now. Uh-huh. so I, yeah. I take it you like your iPhone. Oh, I do, and we're not stuck with AT and T up here. Eh? I'm, oh. I'm in Canada, so we got Rogers, and I mean everybody has issues with their cell phones. But I was on Telus before, and. Rogers is great. I mean, it's the best phone I've had. Yeah. And it acts like my computer. So I don't, I wasn't, you know, my Motorola, I couldn't sync my calendars. It was awful. Yep. I had an old Samsung that I couldn't do any of that with. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, if you put, if I put any data in the phone, that's the only place the data was. And I, I was always worried that it was going to get lost. Hey, sidekick is the news lately, right? Oh, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I could totally, I guess they, they said they actually rescued it now. But. Oh, so they found something, yeah. Well, you would think that they would have a backup of something. I mean, that, that's just craziness, just to lose everyone's data like that. I mean, ugh. That's right. And that's something yeah. that Mac users and iPhone users, really, I should say, because you can use an iPhone with a PC, you don't have to worry about because it's there's nothing sitting in the cloud. It's all on your phone. It's on, on your computer. And if that's right. you're on a you Mac and you got... the computer, which is the next step. And... Yeah, well, you know, I think Time Machine is going to help a lot of people do that. At least it has uh, yeah. everyone I know. But oh, that's cool. I'm I'm glad. What applications are you really digging on the iPhone? Oh, um, gee, I just heard about Photoshop having one last night. Yep, we've got I'm, an article. I'll gonna, be into that. Yeah, yep. we've got an article going to go up on mymac.com that it makes it look really interesting. But I haven't tried it myself. Right, I'm pretty much the you know the regular apps on the phone. You know, I'm in the browser and the, and I use the mail or well, my Gmail account on the browser or the regular mail. I find the mail works fine on the phone, too. And that's kind of quick because it'll answer my Gmail, check my Gmail. And, that's always a good and, thing. Uh, yeah, and then most things, I'm mostly into sound, and, uh, you know, I take pictures with it. I mean, they're not the best because I've just got the, G, the G3, the G but uh, it's still, I always forget my camera. So I enjoy <laughs> just having everything on one thing. And, I, you know, a podcast, I don't read, I listen. Yeah, I think that podcasting, and I don't say this because I'm a podcaster, but I think podcasting mm -hmm. is changing everything. Yeah. You know, I don't listen yeah. to the radio anymore. I listen to podcasts. There's just so many of them out there that I can listen to a subject that I'm really into and I don't have to worry about right. whatever some big media company wants to spoon feed me. Yeah, no, CBC up here, uh, the radio, like NPR, they uh, just came out with an app and you can listen to the podcast, download them, or you can uh, listen to on-demand shows. Time shifting. Time shifting, which yep. is 
even better because the shows, you know, you can't normally listen. Yeah, and if you're at work. Yeah, that's right. Well, congratulations again. I have to call uh, one of our other winners, but... How do you pronounce your last name? Bonner? Brett Bonner. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. Well, congratulations, Doug. Good. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Doug, our winner, and we have another winner coming up here in just a second. His name's Lincoln Bannery. And before we get to that, I do want to throw in our advertisement. It's for Otherworld Computing. They've been a longtime sponsor of the podcast, and we really appreciate that. If you're interested in getting some headphones, they have some really good deals right now. If you go up to Otherworld Computing, they have this link called Audio. And it's really, most of that stuff is pro audio stuff. It's just a fantastic. But they have a lot of headphones up there. And I personally like the over-the-ear headphones. And I know I've said this on the podcast in the past. But they've got some really great deals. One that I want to bring to your attention is the Sennheiser HD202 Pro Closed Dynamic Hi-Fi Stereo Headphones. Big mouthful. Way worth it. These are fantastic headphones. They're only $30. That's, that's amazing. For 50 bucks, you can actually move up in class and get the AKG K77 headphones. Again, top quality headphones, sound great. And, you know, AKG is, when it comes to audio, you just can't beat AKG. They're really, really good. So, once again, thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring the podcast. And if you want to win headphones, keep listening to this podcast because, hey, you never know, we might give some away. All right, here, let's see. Let's give Lincoln a call. This is Lincoln. Hi, Lincoln. This is Tim Robertson. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, you don't know who I am, do you? I do. It took me a second. But I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, dang it, I didn't sound surprised. <laughs> so, so obviously you know you want a pair of headphones from iFrogs, the ear pollution DJ style headphones. Oh, really? Yep, you're a winner. Oh, awesome. That's very cool. Well, uh, we appreciate you listening to the podcast, and it's kind of cool that we can uh, give stuff away to people who listen to the show. It's the least we can do. If, you gotta, if you're putting up with listening to us, I mean, you know, the, the <laughs> least we can do is give people stuff, right? Yeah, well, that's great. No, I listen. I, I've, uh, I've listened ever since I got my iPhone, which uh, um, has been a little while now. So, I'm, yeah, I'm very excited. And actually, I'm going to be a, a guest on your show in December. Oh, are you? See, we have yeah. so many people signed up. That I didn't even bother to look compared to the winners to who's. <laughs> let me see, we got you scheduled on. Oh, okay, yeah, the beginning of the uh, December. That's cool. So yeah, well, I don't want to ask you too many questions here because we'll do that on the uh, actual podcast. But we are recording you, so uh, you get to okay. hear yourself a little early on show. Uh, what is this? Two sixty-two. Well, great. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Well, thanks for entering the contest. Appreciate you listening, and uh, we will talk to you in December. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. And so that was our conversation with the two winners. And, uh, again, thanks to Doug and Lincoln for entering the contest and winning. And David Cohen, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. So this week we had, I think, uh, a really cool prize. We're going to do it again real soon. Maybe not with the DJ-style headphones. Maybe something else. Maybe something with iFrogs. Maybe something with another company. But we really like giving stuff away, and the only way that you listeners can listen and win, listen and win? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they have to listen yeah. to win, don't they? Yeah. I guess so. It helps. It that does helps. help. Yeah. Uh, is to listen and enter the contest. Now, we had a lot of people enter this, 
week, but compared to how many people actually listen to the show, it wasn't as many as I was hoping for. So if you guys hear a contest, send your name and address and phone number in and get into the contest because that's the only way we can give stuff away if, if you guys enter the contest. So we also had a, a contest running on Twitter. We were giving away the Trans International hard drives, and we gave four of those away. Were you following that guy? Uh, not on Twitter, no. No? Were you, David? Oh, yeah. You would be amazed at how many people enter that contest. I mean, it was thousands. I, I couldn't believe it. I don't have, well, I do now, but I didn't have a thousand people following me on Twitter before this. <laughs> and now you do. Now I do. I actually, I broke a thousand, which I don't really care about. Um, but, you know, when it comes to Twitter, I kind of like to keep it smaller because I can't have a conversation with a thousand people. I mean, it's impossible. And I, yeah. a lot of these people I don't follow back because that's the nice thing about Twitter. When someone starts following you, I like to check them out first. Right. And I check them out, and I see that they're just contest entry people. You know, they just retwitter contests. I'm not going to follow those people. I mean, number one, I don't want my Twitter account cluttered up with a bunch of contest stuff. And number two, I like to have actual conversations. And one of the people that I've been having an actual conversation with occasionally is Ted Landau. Hey, Ted. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing real well. Uh, you're a football fan, too. Somewhat, yeah. yeah. Don't watch it as much as I used to, but well, I do like football. You, you, you seem to comment on my Lion, Detroit Lion post more than anybody else. <laughs> that's that's because I lived in Detroit for twenty five years, and, and I'm all too familiar with the Lions. Oh man, they're they're just horrible again this year. But at least there's promise. But let's not hey, get they into beat, they beat the Redskins. They, well, yeah. yeah, who hasn't? But. Uh, let's not get into football because that's not what this show is usually about. Let's talk about Max. Ted, I call you one of the pioneering Mac writers in the entire world. When did you start writing about Macs? I started writing in the late 80s. I think actually the very first thing that I wrote was a um, tip to Mac User Magazine. It was one of those things where they said, you know, if you have some idea uh, for a reader tip, they would uh, – they consider it and possibly publish it and i submitted one i think as I, as I recall it had to do with how to change the welcome to macintosh text message at startup to something else so you could say hi ted or whatever you wanted it to say and so i submitted that and sure enough they published it that was 25 dollars i made uh, that was the first 25 dollars i made writing about the mac you became a professional right away then <laughs> that's right i will write right from the amateur status to getting paid yes immediately you wrote for one of my favorite magazines that didn't really last a long time that was magazine yeah that was actually that was and, and it's a similar story uh the, my, i couldn't have a career writing reader tips i figured so uh at some point i was reading mag a magazine which of course was uh edited by bob levitas yep. how i how i came to first know bob and they too had a, a reader submission offer but this was for an actual full page column that they were looking for i guess they were looking <laughs> in retrospect i look back and say they were looking to see how they could get content for very little money because i think they were going to pay fifty dollars for a full column which even back then was pretty low yeah well that was like 87 too i mean there wasn't a whole lot of writers who actually used a macintosh either yeah, so they were looking for for content, and and I wrote something for them. It was about uh, Andy Hertzfeld's switcher application, 
and they uh, posted it. They uh, printed it, I guess I should say, and back in those days. And uh, I eventually I got a call from Bob who said that he liked the, the article very much and was wondering whether I might want to write more stuff for them. And I said, sure, sounds good. They were going to have me do reviews, which meant, uh, probably meant in most cases anyway, that I would get a free copy of uh, whatever product I was reviewing. And it sounded all very well to me. And so that's, that's really how I got into writing for magazines. When, when the magazine folded, I went on and managed to wrangle writing for Mac User Magazine and just kept going. So in other words, all the magazines that you wrote for, other than Macworld, <laughs> disappeared. out of business. I folded exactly yes. Uh, um, I, I, the timing wasn't exactly like two months after I joined they folded, but yes, uh, I, I must have contributed in some way to their ultimate demise. Yes, we eventually got into doing a lot of book reviews at mymac.com. Actually, I did the first book review years before John Nemirovsky joined mymac, but with John Nemirovsky, he brought in this passion for technology books, and I remember one of the he had this article called uh, Book Bites, and one of the, the first ones he submitted was a review of Sad Max, Bombs, and Other Disasters. And it was a book that I think I picked up three different copies over the years of that. And uh, I think you're familiar with that book, too. Yes, I happened to write it, as a matter of fact. Uh, <laughs> it, it worked out very well. Uh, the the story behind that book is I think I was I forget if I was from with Mac User or Mac World at the time and I was writing reviews and I wanted to get out of just writing reviews and wanted to do some more feature articles and maybe even be listed on the masthead as a contributing editor and uh, the the message that I sort of got was well you know you don't get to be a contributing editor just by writing a lot of articles for us what's what's important is that you give you know that there has to be some quid pro quo we, we you have to give something to us as well as us giving something to you and what can you give to us well you can give to us your name and you have a name if you've done something other than just writing for us that's not how you're going to get a name so do something that says you know then we can just say okay we have Ted Landau on our contributing editor and he's the blah 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 the author of this book or whatever it is you're doing so i said okay in other words i have to write a book so that's what got me thinking about it and i got the idea for a troubleshooting book because I was doing a lot of troubleshooting in my academic department. I was a psychology professor in my other life and, and so I'd gotten into a lot of troubleshooting and uh, I actually contacted Bob Levitas again for some help in getting an agent and a publisher and going through all that and it worked out. I did it, and uh, uh, I have no—I must say that I take no credit for the title of the book, which I opposed the entire time. I said, "What a silly long title! You know that, that that's going to be misunderstood by half the people that see it." But they were convinced that this was the title. To I have to say, I think they're right. I mean, it, I, to me, it's an iconic title. It's one of those that you just remember. Yeah. Well, they appear. Uh oh. I think what we lost you for a second. Keep going. You're okay. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they apparently were were right because it went on to be successful. The third edition, I think it was. Uh, there were four editions of the book altogether. The third edition actually, for a while, was the number one uh, best selling Macintosh book uh, on Ingram's list of uh, books. The Ingram maintained a list of MacBooks at that time. I don't think they do that anymore. Uh, so yeah, it was it was great, and and I eventually did become a contributing editor as a result of that book. So it all worked out. I think most people that are listening to this podcast are, are going to associate you with um, a body of work you did with a website that you actually created called Mac Fix It. Um, now I know you sold Mac Fix It in 2000, which is like 10 years ago. Yeah. Is right. it is it odd to you that you're still so strongly associated? I mean, at least in my mind, and I know a lot of other people too, when I think of Ted Landau, I think of Mac Fix-It. 
Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I guess I don't think about it as being odd anymore. What was what was odd was that for many years after I left MechFixit, many people still assumed that I was doing it, uh, even when I wasn't. Now, it's true that I was writing a monthly column for them for a long time after um, after leaving McFixit. In fact, um, I just ended the monthly column this, this year, but but that was all I was doing for many years. And most people, I don't know about most people, but a lot of people from email that I would get and comments I would see would, would assume that I was still editing the homepage for a long time after I stopped I think that says something about the longevity of uh, the people who are reading it. It's the same core group of Mac users really relied on that. You were the one that started it, so they just normally assume that, oh, he's still there. He's still the main guy. Yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah, it got started back in 1996, and it actually got started as a result of the book. It's like one thing sort of led into the other. Uh, it, it was started because uh, there was about average of two years in between editions for the book and at one point in order to try to help readers of the older editions stay up to date I started posting what I called online updates to the book and at the time I posted them like as a, a document to the America Online or CompuServe the, the internet services that were popular at the time and that worked well for a while but then I started looking there was this web thing coming along and I said well you know this actually might be better than a monthly update that I submit to CompuServe because I'll have total control over it. I'll be able to update it, update it every day if I want and uh, fix mistakes if I find them. And so and it had a lot more flexibility, it seemed. And so I talked to people about that, started learning about the web, talked to Rick Ford, who was doing Macintosh at the time, another one of the earliest uh, Mac websites. Still and is, actually, isn't he? Yeah, I think he still is. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I eventually started, and it was called at the time Sad Max Update Site because the whole point of it was to offer information as an update to the book. I remember that little uh, logo that you had up there for that. Yeah, and eventually it became clear that uh, that oh golly, I have a cat meow in my background here. It's, it's getting my <laughs> attention because uh, I cause I closed the door and she wants to come in. What uh, are you doing in there? Open the door. That's right. It <laughs> must be know. something. Ex- must be something exciting if the door is closed. <laughs> There's a mouse in there. Uh, the mouse closed the door. Open it up. I'll get it for you. Anyway, uh, so yes, uh, eventually it became clear that a lot of people were coming to the site who had never heard of the book or didn't own the book or didn't want to own the book, and, and they just were coming because they liked the troubleshooting information that was there. And uh, so at that point, I thought, well, maybe I should change the site and name and break it away from the book and just have it be an independent site on its own, and that's how it became McFixit. So, Tom, you're a uh, uh, an Apple-certified tech. At First Tech Computer in Minneapolis, yes. So, I take it you've been following Ted's career for a while. Um, yeah, even from the book. I mean, back then, it was uh, a good resource of things that, you know, Apple either couldn't or wouldn't tell us about to, to fix things, and and the... Uh, the Mac Fix It website just expanded on that tremendously. Yeah, I, I can't tell you as an IT manager myself back in the day, um, when I came across something that I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, one of my first stops was always Mac Fix It. And I, honestly, nine out of ten times I would find something that was very similar that would lead me, if not directly to the conclusion, at least lead me to what the conclusion of the problem was going to be. You're going to say something, David. I was just going to ask, ask you, Ted, whether... Uh... Now that you've kind of moved away from from being an online troubleshooter, whether you miss it, and um, you know whether you feel there's there's still Max are so sort of sophisticated nowadays, whether you still feel there's a there's a place for that sort of stuff. 
Oh, there's still a place for it. Uh, there's, there's an aspect of it that I miss, and there's an aspect of it that I don't miss at all. Uh, the part that I, the part that I miss is being in the sort of center of the vortex. When, when I was really in the middle of, of the height of McFix's popularity, I would be getting probably hundreds, sometimes even more than a thousand emails a day. Uh, in fact, I, started, I had to hire one and ultimately two people just to help me go through the email. And whatever was happening in, in the Macintosh world, um, you know, I was finding out about it. And if I said something on the website, it had a noticeable effect. In fact, I remember one time, it wasn't really so much um, uh, about some information that I posted, but, uh, but I, I posted, uh, I'm not troubleshoot information, that is, but I posted information about the next edition of my Sad Max book coming out and with a link to Amazon.com if they wanted to buy it. And within a few hours, I got a call from someone at Amazon, and they wanted to know what I was doing to help promote my book. Because, <laughs> uh, I had just sold about 800 copies in a few hours. They'd never seen anything like it before. Uh, so so it clearly, I mean, you know, here I was on both ends, both coming in and going out, having an effect. And that was exciting. You know, it, it was a real, you know, high. I imagine it's like being in the middle of something on Wall Street, you know, where you just feel like, you know, you're making all these big deals and it's just very exciting in its, in its own right. And so I like that and I miss that because I'm not, I'm not. Um, I'm not doing that nearly as much. Uh, I still do a lot of the troubleshooting writing. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I write for the Mac Observer, and I still write a, a troubleshooting column for Macworld Magazine called Bugs and Fixes. And so I'm still doing a lot of troubleshooting, but it does feel a little bit more peripheral. Uh, and so I miss that. What I don't miss uh, on the other side is I don't miss how much time it took. Uh, my, yeah. my wife. My wife used to refer to herself as a computer widow. Uh, <laughs> she. Uh, she would never see me. It seemed like for for days on end, uh, especially when you know. Remember, I was also keeping my my day job, so to speak, as a psychology professor through a good portion of that time, and uh, and trying to do that and write periodic updates to Sad Max and do McFixit. Uh, I lost uh, I lost hold of my life. That had because you know working was like a twenty four hour a day job, and I don't miss that aspect of it at all. Is that what led to the sale of the site, or did somebody approach you? No, the sale of the site. What led to the sale of the site? I'm trying to think what motivated. I guess um, I guess it was simply money at that point. Uh, the money hardly affected me at all in the beginning, and I certainly didn't do the site to get money. Uh, in fact, you know, there was no advertising on the site initially. I never gave it much thought. The, the only money I hoped to make from the site initially was increasing the sales of my book. Uh, but then one of the uh, one of the p- people that I was friends with who had another Macintosh website, Eric Belsley, who's mm-hmm. doing, um, he got into advertising and he kept telling, me, "Oh, you got to advertise! You got to advertise! You'll make money." And I said, "I don't know. You know, I mean, the, I don't even know how to get advertising. The idea of calling up people and saying, you know, advertise on my website is so antithetical to my personality that I, you know, I got uh, I got you know heart palpitations just thinking about doing that. And but he kept pushing me and said I should do it, and so I did. And eventually, I started having advertising and making some money. And then I guess at some where along the way, the idea that this could be a way to make money began to be appealing, even though that 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 was very much down the road of, of why I was doing this. Uh, you know, it wasn't like one of those people that said, "Oh, let's start this up, and in two years you can you know sell it." Uh, but uh, what happened then, I guess, was uh, another Macintosh website fr- friend of mine, Kurt, uh, who did Version Tracker. Yep. Um, uh, uh, 
sole version tracker to this company. And at the same time, I think it was around the same time that McCentral was bought out by Macworld Magazine. And, um, uh, and and so I started to well, you know, this, this this sort of buying out was getting to be a little the a little popular, and I thought uh, that I might be able to sell McFixit and make some nice money out of it. And so I talked to the same people that had purchased Version Tracker, uh, the a company that then called themselves Tech Tracker, and they were interested, and we negotiated a deal, and that was it. Was it a burden, or was it like a, a lifting of a burden for you to? not be in charge of the site, not worry about the site backups or updating and all that stuff, and you can more concentrate on the writing of the site? Um, no. Actually, uh, and I don't talk about this too much, but but uh, te- we're tra- the, the deal with Trek Trekker, I have to say, on the one hand, worked out very well uh, in the sense that financially they lived up to 100% and more of their commitment. Uh, so, uh, And they were very honest and straightforward throughout the entire process, and, and they were great that way. So um, I, I don't want to say anything negative about it in that regard. However, uh, for the first two years uh, after selling the site, I remained as the editor. Uh, so in that sense, it was nothing different. I was working just as hard and doing just as much as I was before. Uh, and during that two-year, it was a difficult two-year period because I didn't really mesh well with this other company. And partly it was my fault and I think partly their fault. But they, I, you know, my view when I sold McFixit was that the main, and I don't mean to sound egotistical about this, but but, but the main thing that they were getting was me. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because really the site was a pretty, by certainly by today's standards, a pretty crudely constructed site. Uh, and and it wasn't like they were getting any great technology or anything like that. They were, no, they got a decent URL, but what they were really getting was content, and that was you. Right, right. Uh, and so I thought, you know, my, my natural assumption was that that the content I was providing, uh, as more than me, I guess, yeah, there's a better way of putting it, the content would be the most valuable thing that they were getting. Uh, turned out that they were not a very content-oriented company. That I, I was really the only person delivering content in the entire corporation. They were much more geared to the version tracker sort of model, where 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 they were delivering you know uh, something in which the back end, the, the programmers, the engineers were the primary driving force behind how it all worked, uh, and so uh, they, they viewed content as sort of this weird, very marginally important thing and so we got into some conflict over you know the importance of content versus the importance of engineering and we never did entirely work it out and uh, eventually uh, I that's partly what led to me to resign as editor after two years uh, that and just the amount of time it was taking uh, and so um, at that after two years I resigned as editor kept doing the, this monthly column as I said but otherwise had nothing to do with the site you know, I was always kind of surprised because they did own really good sites, but like you said, they weren't content sites. They were, I need an update for this app, what's available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they never really linked what was going on at MacFixit with that directory, and I thought that was a natural, and I thought that's why they bought you out originally, but they never really went that route at all. 
No, I thought they would do more in that direction than they did. On the other hand, I know I was very difficult for them. I, I can't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we've heard that about you. Yes, uh, I, I can't. I can't. I can't deny it. And uh, I mean, I remember when I, 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 I was having trouble with the corporate culture. I remember one of the first things was uh, after I sold the site, they wanted to do a major redesign. I don't know, major, a significant redesign. Let's put it that way of the site and time it for MacWorld Expo, so that uh, so that they could feature. At, at Macworld Expo, and they, and they, the the design, in my view, wasn't ready. I mean, there were there were so many things that were wrong with it, and, and my feeling was I pay for it more than they do because what happens is when when something you know, half cocked, half finished, whatever gets implemented, the first thing that happens is I get two thousand extra emails complaining about how bad it is. And, yeah, and and I didn't need that, and so I said, you know, this isn't really ready. People aren't going to like it. It's going to go over like a lid balloon. It's not ready, you know. Just because it's MacWorld Expo, we don't have to do something crappy. And uh, and they said, oh no, you know, from a marketing point of view, it's really important that we do it for MacWorld Expo. Uh, and and we got into an argument about it. And I, uh, ultimately, they let me win that argument because you know I, I'm not sure exactly why, but I was pretty insistent that I didn't want to do it. And 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 they said okay, uh, but they were really unhappy that I that I wouldn't go along with it, and and that was just like the first of lots of arguments like that that we had. So you're still writing out there. Is there a uh, itch for you to start something else again now, or are you kind of past that? And you're you're more content with being a content provider on sites that you don't own. Uh, I'm content with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, it would be in some sense nice to get back that excitement again, and I've given it some thought from time to time. But at this point in my life, I don't need the hassle of doing all that. It's nice to have time to myself uh, and, and and be able to have a life outside of doing all that stuff. And you know, I'm getting on in years as it was, and I think uh, I think the, the sort of thing you're talking about, I'm going to leave to younger people at this point. So I'm happy to be sort of uh, in this more relaxed mode boy i should take notes <laughs> <laughs> you also do podcasting you're in mac notables quite often in fact i i don't remember if i've ever listened to mac notables notables that you weren't on Oh, no, they have lots that I'm not on. Uh, but, yes, I do that. And, and that um, that's all Chuck. Chuck Joyner started it and asked me and several other people to be part of this McNotables group. And uh, and I, I started doing a little more often in the last year because um, it was just it was convenient. I wanted to do more podcasting. And, whoa, somebody's calling. Now that's me bringing Tom Schmidt back in. We were getting feedback <laughs> on his line. Okay. Um, I wanted to do more podcasting, and again, it's a similar thing to what we were just talking about. I wasn't prepared to want to actually be a podcaster, to have to uh, get all the equipment together and set up the, the podcasting and advertise it and do all the things that you guys do the, uh, and, and do a good job of. Uh, I was happy not to have that hassle, and so it was a nice symbiotic relationship. Uh, Chuck got me to do podcasting, and I was able to be on a podcast without actually having to do the headache of setting it up. So uh, I fell into doing that fairly regularly, yeah. And I do some others, like this one, from time to time, but Mac Notables is where I am most of the time. It's Podcasting is one of those things that, at least I could never have imagined when I started in, in publishing that this was going to be possible, was video on demand and watching television shows right on your Mac and actually creating content and putting it out on the web. Is this stuff that you thought we'd be doing at this point? No, actually, I agree with you. I, I hadn't, and I probably, I didn't give it that much uh, thought back then. But that is, in my view, that is the biggest 
one of the biggest anyway um, benefits of the whole development of the web and the internet and that is the democratization of it uh, and I suppose you can go all the way back to desktop publishing when when, when PageMaker first came out and stuff like that. that that what desktop computing and later all the, the internet features have allowed people to do is to do things that would have required you know a company the size of NBC or Associated Press or something like that to do years ago and now one person with a computer can do stuff that looks e- almost equally impressive if not equally impressive i'd say more so sometimes but then i listen to my show and i go oh no (laughs) (laughs) so let me ask you are you you've been publishing for a long time on your own then you joined other publishing sites but you were there in the trenches in the dark days 97 98 99 were you at all worried that we wouldn't be using macintosh computers come 2010 Oh, yes, I was. Um, After Windows 95 and then Windows 98 came out, that period there, uh, and before Steve Jobs came back to to Apple, uh, it was really bad. I was there, a couple of things I can tell you, I was there for... Um, a Macworld Expo where a bunch of press were invited to to a luncheon with Gil Emilio, who was the CEO at the time, and he gave this talk to us, and he wasn't he wasn't actually saying the words but after after we um after the talk was over the press starts talking among themselves and says, it sounds like he said that mac os 8 which was not the mac os 8 that eventually came to be called right that. copeland yeah this is the copeland he said it sounds like he's saying mac os 8 is dead that it's not going to come out and and people are scratching their heads and say, yeah, that's what it sounds like he said. And and I think there might have been some questions afterwards, and, and he pretty much confirmed that that's what he was saying. I said, whoa, you know, this is bad news. Uh, to have to spend two years hyping a, a new version of the, of the OS and then not even come out with it. In fact, I was sitting that, that evening, I was sitting at, at dinner next to a book author that had just published uh, a, a, a book on, on Copeland, uh, based on pre-release versions that he had had access to, and, and now he was facing a book out <laughs> OS that was never going to come out. Yeah, we actually had um, him on this show. Um, I, I think we're probably the only podcast out there that's ever had an Apple CEO on their podcast before. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And real nice guy. I don't think he gets enough credit for the turnaround at Apple than he deserves. I I, I think he did a lot more than most people realize. I mean. Uh, a lot of people give Steve Jobs all the credit for the iMac, but that project started under Gil Emilio before Apple was, or before Steve Jobs was even back. Really? See, yeah. I don't even know that. I thought Steve was responsible for no, it. No, well, do do the math. When when did the iMac come back or come out, and when did Steve Jobs return to the company? They can't come out with a product that quickly. Uh, I thought it was about about I thought it was about a year. About a year. Came back. Exactly. How uh, long do you think it takes Apple to come up with some brand new technology like USB and? The design. Well, a lot of that started with Gil Emilio, especially when it came to trimming back on a lot of the product line and saving well, money and canceling projects that were just going nowhere, which is what guess, Steve Jobs continued when he came back. Right. I guess that's so, but uh, I still, I, I'd be surprised if the iMac would have been the same if Steve hadn't come out, come back to the company. So probably something not. was gonna, something was going to come out, but it might not have been what ultimately was the iMac. I've been monopolizing most of the questions. Guy, David, Tom, you guys have any questions? Start with you, Guy. Um, have you have you made any decisions on exactly uh, where you might have taken Mac Fix It if you hadn't sold it? Sorry, not decisions, but have you have you given any thought to that? Um, 
No, not really. I, I think, I, I mean, if the opportunity to sell came later on, I probably would have sold it later on if I couldn't sell it at that point. It actually was a good time to sell it because yeah. so I sold it just before the dot-bomb, dot-bomb, that's a good expression, the dot-com Do, Dot-bomb is what it was, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely a bomb. Yeah, the dot-com bubble burst a few months after I sold it, and uh, I never would have been able to sell it probably, I was going to say, for that price uh, that I did sell for, or at all probably at that point for, for many years afterwards. So um, I, was, I was quite happy that I did sell it at that point. And if I hadn't sold it and just kept it, it probably, if it didn't kill me from the uh, work I was doing, I probably would have just continued to expand it in the way that the sites um, uh, have expanded today. I'd be doing podcasts and uh, and and other things of, of that sort that, uh, that that all the other sites are doing. Well, what do you think about the uh, the redesign of the site? Um, well, there's parts I don't like about it. Uh, I, I mean, mostly, and actually, in terms of the redesign, I'm not a big fan of it. To be honest with you, I, I don't like the way that it's subsumed. Uh, under CNET, the CNET uh, yeah, and see, and in the review section. In fact, I tried. Uh, you know, if you you see you see that McFixit is in the hierarchy under reviews. It goes you know reviews and then McFixit. And so I went, I backstepped and went to the reviews section, uh, the, the sort of the parent heading, and to see whether I could find McFixit listed anywhere there. And, and you couldn't. In fact, I think I even did a search on the word McFixit while I was in the review section, and McFixit didn't come up. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's like this sort of often left field the stepchild of the review section. And it's not, it has nothing I, to do with reviews anyway, so I'm not sure why it would be there. I, do, I, don't, I don't think that's a, that's a deliberate decision. I think that the CNET site is just so badly laid yeah. out. that it, I mean, I, I, I use it for various different things, and I can never... I can never find specific things from within the site, or I always have to get in via Google and then mm. bookmark it because just because it, it's so large, it's so sprawling, and it, the organization seems to be changed almost on a daily basis, and it's very difficult to find. Well, I think you need to look um, at the parent company of CNET right. to see where some of that problem is. Mm. Well, yeah, and, and I appreciate that. You know, it's, mm. a, it's a big and, and, you know, it's a many-headed company, but uh, it, it is frustrating trying to find stuff on that site. Well, I, I agree, and I don't think that they were particularly singling McFix it out for that problem. No. But but it, it was a problem, and it, and it makes no sense that it's in a review section anyway. But aside yeah. from that, the 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 articles themselves, um, they have I think they've actually in some ways gotten better. Uh, the the last few months before the redesign, I felt they were really getting away from troubleshooting. Uh, and and uh, and they were getting away from doing any sort of their own work. Uh, it seemed to me that 90% of the items on the home page were somebody looked at the uh, Apple discussions forums and found an interesting topic, and then and then they linked to it as a as an item. Uh, and and after the redesign, or around the time of the redesign, I think more more when CBS took a more active role uh, rather than than CNET itself, uh, that they got back more into doing some of their own uh, writing and and troubleshooting and so in that sense i think it's actually a little bit better though i know a lot of people yeah. a lot of people hate it and say you know <laughs> it's, it's yeah. never it's never going to be good as far as they're concerned yeah. so. ted do you do you think uh, somebody who's been around for an awful long time in the mac community do you think the community nowadays and and sort of technology pundits in general kind of have lost some perspective about um about apple and and then technology in general in terms of the things that that get raised as big issues and get complained about. I mean, you were just talking a few minutes ago about days when you thought Apple might not survive. Mm -hmm. And yet nowadays, you know, 
somebody will fix on some slight redesign in iTunes or um, a design decision or a bug or something like that, and they'll kind of go on about it and, and say how terrible it is and class action lawsuits will be raised and all this sort of thing. Do you think that really as a community we've kind of lost our way in terms of remembering where the communities come from? Not really, no. I mean, I think there 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 were lawsuits back in in the earlier days as well. I don't think that's all that new. What what is new, and it's not specific to the Mac community, I think is, and but it's just a characteristic of the internet in general. And I'm certainly not the first one to point this out, is uh, that the freedom to say whatever thought comes out of your head without even giving it a, a second thought when you're responding to reader comments or writing on your blog or whatever, and, and People, you know, you, you write a column, and then, and I don't mean me personally, because actually it doesn't happen to me a lot. I'm happy to say, but but if you know, if there are three people in America that have a different opinion than what you wrote, they seem to immediately find that you wrote it, and then tell you what an idiot you are for for having said said something that that they disagree with. And, God forbid. Um, Right, and often in the most—that's that's what really bugs me—in the most insult, insulting terms, often that they would never say if they were standing in front of you. Somehow, yeah. ma- making it a comment at the end of an article gives them the license to 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 do that. Well, uh, internet bullies. Mm-hmm. And yes, and uh, uh, actually, when I first started writing, you're making me think about it. when I first started writing for um, uh, Mac Observer. Uh, there were, the, the, I got more comments like that than I do now. I guess as you become more more known and established, those sort of comments uh, hopefully go down. And, and every once in a while, and usually I would just ignore them, and every once in a while I would try to respond. And one time I just I just gave up trying to respond nicely and and said, you know, this I, they they made some personal attack, and I said, oh yes, the ad hominem attack that always works well when you don't know what you're talking <laughs> something like uh, and. Uh, and I, ne- I never heard from them again. That seemed to be effective, and so I, I've, <laughs> I've learned that somehow, respond, somehow, you know, taking them, taking the bull by the horns, as it was, uh, as it were, and, and responding directly sometimes is the best approach. Uh, Ted, um, one of the biggest changes that's come about with Apple in the past ten years is their own retail stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think? The retail store service experience compares to, say, um, an independent place like where where I work at, which is it falls in the Apple specialist category. And how do you think the retail stores have affected the landscape as compared to ten years ago? Okay. Well, first, when when Apple stores were first announced, I had two immediate reactions. The first one was, "Wow, about time!" Because the, the, except online through through the internet, uh, the only way you could get uh, an Apple computer at at that time was through stores like CompuServe, and a little bit through Best Buy. I think carried them periodically, and they were terrible. I mean, there was, you know, I could go back even farther in time and say there were there was an earlier period of time when there were actually a bunch of computer hobbyist type stores that specialized in Apple computers back in the days of the Apple IIe and stuff like that. Uh, but they all went away as, as, as things evolved. And what you were left with were, were stores like CompuServe and, and Best Buy that treated Apple terribly, that you'd go in there and, you know, it's, it's classic, uh, you know, folklore now. And, and the, the first thing the, com- the salesman would try to do if you said you were interested in an in a Apple computer was steer you to something else because they either 
didn't want you to buy it or they genuinely thought uh, that it, that they weren't good computers or they didn't know about them or whatever uh, and, and they were stuck in the back of the store next to some cartons you know that, that they were ready to throw out in the trash later in the day and it was very unattractive and and I and if the Apple stores could somehow turn that around I said great and 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 that's what they did the other reaction that I had was oh my god this is another setup for failure because I would look around at the other few attempts to do something like that like the gateway stores and and, uh, and and to some extent Dell stores I think they were around for a while uh, and and they they were failures and I said here's Apple with you know, at the time a much me- more meager market share how are they possibly going to be successful well uh, once again I, I think largely through the magic of, of Steve Jobs uh, they were successful and they're probably the, the most successful line of computer stores ever uh, and they have they have dramatically changed the landscape for Apple and, and I think have contributed to the increased market share for the, for the Macs because you have all the, the sales of the iPods and the iPhones, which go to people who don't own Macs, gets these people into the Apple stores and I think increases the chance that they're going to walk out someday with a Mac uh, as well. So I think, it's been, I think it's been great. The downside, I think, um, is that... Um, it gets i guess it becomes intermingled with apple's decision for instance to pull out of macworld expo and and they start making statements like you know what do we need macworld expo for we we see more people in uh in a uh in, in our apple stores over the course of a day or a week whatever it was than than we would ever see in, in, in at a macworld expo uh so they were content with publicizing their products to the apple stores the problem is that the apple stores are very much of a one-way street. They talk to you. You don't really get to talk to them in the same way. You don't get to see the engineers, the programmers, the the, the PR staff that, that you get to see at Macworld Expo. You don't get the big community uh, of people coming together. Um, it's a it's a much more Apple-controlled environment, which I think, from Apple's perspective, is just fine because they're very much into control of their environment. From from my perspective as a user, uh, if I want to, you know, learn about Apple products. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to get the official Apple uh, one-sided spin. PR yeah spin on it. It's 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 not the, the ideal solution. And the and the fact that there isn't other ways to do it uh, that are as successful and or as nearly as successful, I think is is too bad. So that that's the one thing I would say against it. Tom, or um, Tom, I want to apologize for not getting you on the show a whole lot more um, because we had Ted on this week. I want to invite you back on. Um, I know you. You're writing for my Mac, but Thursdays is usually a very bad day to get you on the podcast, isn't it? Well, uh, the timing <laughs> I know. generally coincides with uh, being in my truck on the way home, and then that's also my daughter's dance classes. Well, I'll tell you what, the next time you have a free Thursday, let me know, and we'll get you on and uh, spend a lot more time talking with you, okay? Okay. I apologize for not getting you on more. Ted, I want to thank you for uh, being on this week, and I want to ask you the last question here before we wrap up the show. And okay. that question is, what do you think Apple's doing right now that really excites you, that you hadn't seen before? Ooh, that I hadn't seen before. That, well, that last part throws me a little bit. I, I, the, the biggest thing that excites me over the past couple of years has, of course, been the iPhone, and I shifted um, I, I find that almost all of my energy now goes into iPhone stuff. You know, I've still written articles about Snow Leopard, of course, when it came out. But if you look at the articles that I've written over the last year or two, you'll probably find that 
80% or more of them are about the iPhone because that's really what interests me. And I have an iPhone book that I, that I wrote as well as, as a result of that. And, uh, and I, so the iPhone, I think, is the trendsetter for the direction that, that computers are going to go. Uh, they're getting more and more mobile. Small, you know, smaller is becoming more popular. Uh, uh, the the touchscreen interface, I think all of that has set um, a major shift in direction that I think will, will be seen as the years go on. I think it's possible five, ten years from now that Macs like the iMac and even the MacBook Pro will become increasingly rare as as some sort of handheld or ultra-portable device becomes the primary way that most people uh, deal with computers. And in that regard, all this talk about the tablet computer that, that Apple is supposedly coming out with, uh, I think, uh, may be the next step in that, in that evolution. So I'm looking forward to that. So, Ted, where can people listening to this podcast find out more information about you, links, uh, your current work, that sort of thing? Well, one place is the Mac Observer. I have a column called User-Friendly View and a blog called User-Friendly Blog that I write there usually at least once a week. Uh, I also, as I said, have this Bugs and Fixes column for Macworld. If you go to the Macworld's website, it's listed in the Mac 911 section of the site. And uh, what else? I... um, I, I like the iPhone book that I mentioned. It's a take control book uh, from Adam and Tonya Angst, uh, and you can look for that there. I'm, I'm finishing up a third edition for the iPhone OS 3, and that should be out in a couple of months. Is it take control of iPhone? Uh, it's called take control of your iPhone now. I think the new edition is going to be called take control of iPhone OS 3. Uh, because uh, as uh, as recognition of the fact that the iPhone is becoming bigger and bigger, the Take Control books are going to come out with two or three iPhone books rather than the one that was was just mine up until now. Well, we appreciate it. Of course, there's always TedLandow.com, right? Yeah, so TedLandow.com is... Uh, I think about um, expanding that. Right now, it's what I call just a vanity site. It's a place to go to find out what I've been doing and how wonderful I think I am. (laughs) Uh, um, You know, one of the things that I had planned on doing on this podcast was talking to you a lot about the Macworld Expo because I know you've got a whole lot of experience with those, and uh, we just never really got to it. So maybe we ought to do that sometime in the future. Yeah, perhaps that'd be fine. I'd be happy to come back uh, in any case. Uh, but you're saying about the Ted Landau site that, that I, th- I think about re- revamping that site and actually starting to do a blog there, uh, where I blog on uh, on on things. Well, as long as you're getting me on, I don't mean to take time. I know you're getting to the end here. But one of the things that the blog that I have on Mac Observer has sort of worked out is that's not really a blog as much as it is a weekly column. So, for instance, if I want to write up something that's only a paragraph long, like you can do in a traditional um, WordPress type of blog, uh, um, I can't really do it because that's not what the blog is really about. They become really like formal page, two-page long columns. And so every once in a while I think, well, maybe I can you know, start up a blog on the Ted Landau site for when I want to just make these offhand comments that, that are very much in the, in the spirit of blog. But I haven't gotten around to that. For now, it's just a site. It's, it's like a resume site, uh, maybe a kinder way of putting it. If you want to find out what I'm doing, that's where it is. Cool. Well, if you ever want to just uh, post stuff, just make an account on uh, MyMac.com. I'll give you blog access. (laughs) (laughs) Write anything you want. (laughs) Okay, I'll bear that in mind. Thanks. So with that, we're going to wrap up uh, show 262. We'll be back next week. We're going to have a listener invite. Guy Searle and David Cohen, you guys are going to be here. Uh, Tom, I want to thank you for being on this week. Like I said earlier, I appreciate you being here, but... 
I'm sorry that we didn't get you, you know, on the mic as much as we'd uh, like to have. Well, there'll be more opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah, we this this Maybe podcast is uh, five years old this December, so I think we're going to be around for a while. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's a. Uh, it's fun for me. I don't know how fun it is for the listeners. Uh, you know, that's why we keep giving these contests so we can keep the listeners and we give them free stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ted, thanks a lot for being on the show this week. We would definitely want to have you back again and uh, appreciate all the writing that you've done for, for Mac users. I mean, you, you've contributed a lot to this community and uh, if no one's ever said so, thank you because you've made using the Mac so much easier for literally thousands and thousands of people. Well, thanks very much for saying so, and thanks for having me on the show. This is my first time doing it, and I will look forward to doing it again, and thank you very much. So for Guy, David, Tom, and Ted, I'm Tim, and we'll see you next time. And thank you for downloading and listening to the MyMac.com podcast.